Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, Therefore, submit to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come now to read and to speak of your word. And to do that, Heavenly Father, we need your guidance, your direction, your power, and your ability. Enable us to speak. Enable us to listen. Challenge each and every one of us with regard to our standing before you this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been going through the book of James for the last few weeks since the beginning of October. And as I read the book of James, it's about relationships, really. It's about relationships between God and man and man and man. And James calls it the royal law in chapter 2, verse 8. The royal law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And in the context of this particular passage of scripture, it's loving God, it's loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this context, it's loving yourself, your, your, your fellow believer. Carl Peterson came along, dealt with chapter 1. And really he was talking about our relationship between ourselves and God. And he was saying that when you become a Christian, suffering and temptation don't go away. They're common to all people. But God goes through these things with you. And then Stan came along in chapter 2 and he started speaking about the relationship between the, the, the believers. And, and he was saying, well... You mustn't show preference to any of them. The, the real Christianity, real Christians don't show preference to people who have money and to other sorts of people. They treat everybody the same. And he went on and he said, now you must express that real Christianity by doing works of faith. Serving others through works of faith. 
And then for the last two weeks, we've had Michael Harvey here who's been speaking about the starting point for good relationships between saints, between Christians. And he was saying the starting point is the tongue. That tongue that can do a mountain of damage, a spark can set a whole field of flame, a whole mountain of flame. But that tongue equally, that when it is controlled, can do an eternal work for good. It can take that ship, that little rudder, and it can direct that ship wherever it wants it to go. And he spoke last week about the wisdom of man reversing the wisdom of God. And he spoke about the futility of man's philosophies. And he showed it to us from a book. And, and he compared that to the benefits of God's wisdom as it works itself out in our daily lives as the fruit of the Spirit becomes apparent in our daily lives. And today we move on to chapter 3, where we deal with the danger of friendship with the world, where we deal with drawing near to God, where we deal with defaming others, and finally doing God's good work. And we'll do that over a period of two weeks, and today we're just going to deal with the danger of friendship with the world. I find it quite alarming that chapter 3 ends with, in verse 18, with those words peacemakers sowing peace and reaping a reward of righteousness. And then the very next verse speaks about wars and quarrels and fights among you saints. It's like, where are we going here? Peacemakers and people at war in the same church, in the same context. Clearly, in the time that James wrote, there was a problem, a massive problem. And so he writes to them. And as I got to think about it, I think to myself, you know, there, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of unhappy people in the world. And to a large degree, their circumstances are not the problem. You see, there are lots of wealthy people who don't have a financial concern that are incredibly unhappy. And the poor are saying, well, if only we had money, we'd be happy. So the wealthy and the poor are both equally unhappy. And there are lots of healthy people that are incredibly unhappy and there are lots of unhealthy people who are also incredibly unhappy and the opposite of that is true. There are unhealthy people who are incredibly happy. And outside of the church there are lots and lots of unhappy people and I'm sorry to say it, but inside the church, there are lots of unhappy people as well. You've only got to go out and read the newspapers and you see the strikes and demonstrations to know that a large percentage of the people in our land are desperately unhappy. I would challenge you to get into your car and drive to the main road and Duval Road where it comes in and you know you've got one of those little green flashing lights? You know the ones that said you can skit around the corner like this? 
Amania, if that guy goes green and you haven't got your foot on the accelerator and the clutch at the same time and you drop it like that, the guy behind you is going to hoot. And he's going to get like usually miffed with you. And unfortunately, some of those got Jesus stickers on the back of their cars. And I want to say to you this morning that even in the Christian church I would suggest that there's hardly a family here that in some way isn't struggling with relationships within the framework of their families. Husbands versus wives, parents versus children. And as those children grow older and get married, the introduction of in-laws <laughs> it all causes problems. Incredible. And we're talking about Christians. We're talking about people who are born again, people who are in the church. And James says to these people, why is this so? Why is it so? And in verse 1 he says, it's because of the desires that war within you. The desires that war within you. As Christians, we talk about peace. We preach the gospel of peace, if you, uh, Ephesians chapter, uh, uh, the gospel of peace, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 15. We claim a peace that passes human understanding, Philippians 4 verse 7. We work at being peacemakers and sowing the seeds of peace in James chapter 3 verse 18. We've read it this morning. And these things are all true. And as we convey the message, that impl it implies that, that I'm okay, I'm above these things. And, and, and I have absolute, absolute peace at all times, in all circumstances. But you know it's not true. You know as well as I do that it's not true. It's not reality, is it? But we say nothing. We say nothing to anybody because we, we don't want them to think that our Christianity is not what it should be. So when you come in the door here and you've got those lovely people with those large grins on their faces and they're so happy to see you and they say to you, how are you doing? You say, I'm doing fine, thank you. But it's a cover-up. It's not true. The truth is, for a lot of us, we're carrying major hurts caused by conflict within the framework of the family, differences within the church, things that mostly have been said and been misinterpreted, and we make an issue out of it because of the war that's going on inside of us. Because in each and every one of us, there's a war going on. Listen to Paul as he cries out in Romans chapter 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And as he puts pen to paper to write these words, he reveals the war that is going on inside of himself, the great Paul.
and nothing changes in Medway in, in 2012. And nothing's going to change in 2013 and 14. It's just going to carry on. Andrew Rowan, when he was speaking a few Sundays ago, he mentioned the spiritual giants that have got everything together. And he said they were at Medway. I've been looking for them since then. I haven't found them. But, but he did mention them. If they are here, they would admit to a war that's going on inside of them. They'd be the first to admit it. The truth is, in this matter, there are no giants. Everybody's equal. We're all the same. We all struggle. We all go from day to day with this battle going on within us. So what causes the wars? James says, the desires that battle within us. Now, the moment he says that the desires that battle within us, he says this, he implies that they're two opposing parties. You can't have a war with, two, with people that agree with one another. You have to have a war that have opposing parties. And in Romans chapter 7, Paul puts it this way. He explains it this way. Verse 21, he says, Evil is within me, the one that wills to do good. Can you see the two parties? There's the one that wills to do good, but there's evil within him. In Corinthians, the second book of Corinthians, he speaks about being a new creation in Christ. Now, this is this new creation. And in verse 22 of Romans 7, he says, delighting in the law of God. So this new creation that he is in Christ, born again in Christ, is the one that wills to do good, that delights in the law of God. But then in verse 23 he says this, Yet I see another law in my members, warring against the law of the mind. The law of the mind is that which says, I delight in the law of God, I want to do good. And there's a war in me that's fighting against that. Verse 25, he explains it and he says, So with my mind, the one that delights in the law, that seeks to do good, I serve the law of God. But with my flesh, the law of sin. So there's a spiritual side and there's a fleshly side. There's a Jekyll and Hyde situation. The new man and the old man. The spiritual man and the natural man or the fleshly man. And that's the way that Paul explains it. And that is where the problem lies. And nothing will change until the day the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to take us to be himself, be with himself. And we are that completed new creation. For the rest of our lives, we will battle. For the rest of our lives, we will struggle. For the rest of our lives, we must take control. What is the consequence of the situation? If you go back to chapter 3, verse 14, you'll see this. Envy and self-seeking are the problem. 
That's where the flesh operates. That's what the flesh produces. And he says it's earthly. He says it's sensual. And he says it's demonic. You see. You desire. Others have. And you don't have. So you envy. The flesh demands. Evil takes control. And self-seeking results. I need a bigger. I need a better. Because my friend here has got a, 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 an e-pad there. And I don't have it. I want it. I see it. I want it. I, I see my friend over there. He's, he's got a, a new car. You know, Ian's got a nice car. No, not Ian. Somebody else. <laughs> got a nice car. And mine's not so nice. I see it. I want it. Somebody's got a bigger and a better house than me. I see it and I want it. And it slides out of control. And But I'm a good Christian, you see. So what do I do? The chances of me needing it are very slim. The house I've got is big enough. The car that I've got doesn't let me down. And there's only two old toppies that ride in that car anyway. It's my wife and myself. And she's much younger than I am. Um, but you get the drift. I don't really need it. But I want it. So I must have it. But I'm a good Christian, you know. So what do I do? I do the next best thing. I pray about it. And I say, Lord, I need it. Please give it to me. And as we read it, he says, no, no, no. You don't need it. I'm not going to give it to you because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. You want that bigger house not to entertain my people, not to look after my people, but just so that other people can look at you and say, ah, he's got such a nice house. He drives such a nice car. He must be such a good person. So he says, no. He says, your motives of self-seeking. And the great tragedy of it all is we don't leave it there. We don't leave it there. Listen to what James says. You are prepared, verse 2, to kill for it. You're prepared to kill for it. And that's the tragedy. No, Lawrence, you're talking nonsense now. Where are we Christians? We're not prepared to kill for it. Oh, yes, you are. The book says so, not Lawrence. The book says so. James says so, not me. In my lifetime, I've seen it happen. 
I want to tell you I've seen it happen. Minor differences become massive arguments. A little envy comes a major jealousy. A little selfishness becomes an obsession. I've seen it happen. Done it. Been there. As I say, I've got the t-shirt. I've seen churches and people torn apart and killed. Left the church, closed their Bibles, put them away. Never read them again. The tragedy is we are prepared to kill because of our own selfish desires. I was in a church many years ago and it's had a lasting impression on me. A missionary who had preached in our church on a number of occasions was known to us. He was quite young at the time, young man, and I suspect we supported, we supported him financially. He came to live in our area. So he came to our church. We knew him well. But he did not bring a letter of commendation from the church he was in in North Africa. So one of the elders took exception to that. And a war broke out in the church. That split the church. We had to stop the communion service one day because of it. We are prepared to kill. And the real problem was not the letter of commendation which was not necessary because we knew the guy. What was the point of a letter of commendation when you know the person? The point was as a young people we really respected the missionary. And he was a great encouragement to us as young men who were getting into the platform for the first time and preaching the word. And as he would sit there, I can remember thinking to myself, you know, nobody's ever heard this message I've given today because this stoke doesn't know about it, the way he was looking at me. But of course he knew it. I mean, I've never produced anything new in my life. But you know, he was so enthusiastic. And this other elder sensed the commitment we had to him. And he became jealous. He didn't want to lose his power base in the church. So he created a power base and he caused trouble. We are prepared to kill for it. Believe me. We are prepared to kill for it. And I believe that that is the reason why James uses the language that he does here. Listen to the language. It is very strong. It is very forceful. He's stating his case in no uncertain terms and, and Ray, diplomacy is not part of his policy here. He says you lust, you fight, you war, you murderer, you murder and you're adulterers and adulteresses. He's not mincing his words here. Why? Because the danger of friendship with the world is so great. It destroys churches. It destroys people. It kills them off. And so in verse 4 he says, Look, you're either a friend of the world 
or you're a friend of God. You can't be both. There's no half measures. There's no colored diplomatic line here. It's either yes or it's no. It's either friendship or enmity. And you have to make a choice. And he says if you're in relationship with God, then you must not be in an adulterous relationship with the world. It's tough language, but it's a tough topic. And I got to thinking about my upbringing in, in the assembly that I attended as a young person. And you know, I'm very critical of what those elders did. They somehow other thought that the church would just carry on. They didn't recognize the massive changes that came about in the 1960s. And they just carried on. They didn't look after the young people. They just carried on. But of course the church didn't carry on. But I want to tell you one thing about them. I want to tell you one thing about them. We were taught about the dangers of friendship with the world virtually on a weekly basis. They taught us the dangers of friendship with the world virtually on a weekly basis. It was ingrained in us. And over the years, I've watched this teaching slide from the front page onto the back page. And we don't hear it anymore. Or we hear it very rarely or in a very airy-fairy way. It's dropped off the calendar. And I believe that it is the work of Satan. Now, if you preach the basic, the three basic sins, lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they sort of look at you and think, well, this acts a little bit, a little bit funny. He, he, he's a bit, um, he's a bit out of it, you know. He, his message is a bit irrelevant. You're considered narrow-minded. But the fact of the matter is, the message hasn't changed. The scripture still stands. And there's still a war going on in each and every one of us. And we still need to see the same message from James. Don't be involved in an adulterous relationship with the world. You're a believer. You're a Christian. You've got to live like a Christian. You've got to walk like a Christian. You've got to reflect the glory and the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ in your daily life. There is no alternative. Friendship within the world has always been a problem. It is still a problem. And I think in the day and age in which we live is a very, very real danger. One of the most comprehensive descriptions of God appears in Exodus 
34 verse 6. Moses has in his anger broken the tablets that God had given him and he now has to take some new tablets to God and in the process he says to God, Show me your glory. And God says this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And for those of us who want to be in an uh, adulterous relationship with the world, that sounds very convenient because you'll always just forgive us. But you can't stop there because that's not where God stopped. He carried on and he said this. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. You say, but Lawrence, there's a thing called eternal security. It doesn't matter what I do, I'm going to go to heaven. We're not talking about that. We have eternal security as believers. And, and God does forgive us. That is guaranteed. But when we fraternize with the world, we may turn to God and He will forgive us. But we'll live with the consequences. That won't go away. That won't go away. So we have this desire for the bigger house. And God says no. And we say but. And then we go to the bank and, and we, we stretch the financial statement to fit the loan required. It, it's not absolutely, well, you know, we're Christians, so it's not a lie. We're just stretching it a bit. So we get the loan. And a couple of months down the track, the loan rate goes up. The wife gets pregnant, she can't work. The husband loses. And then we live with the consequences. Even as Christians, we live with the consequences and we say, well, why, why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? Or, or our young people say, well, well, as a group of young people, we're going to go to the club because we just want to listen to the music. Barbara and Stan know of an incident of a guy who did that. While he wasn't looking, they spiked his drink. And when he woke up, he was in the home of a gay guy and he didn't know what happened to him. And he lives with the consequences of that. Maybe a Christian, may go to heaven, but he'll live with the consequences of that for the rest of his life. The danger of friendship with the world is real. I believe that for many of us our problems are because of the war that is uncontrolled that is raging within, raging within us. That war leads us into friendship with the world. 
we end up participating in their practices and we reap the fruit thereof. Next week, if you still want to come and hear some more, we'll deal with how to deal with the problem. With the very next verse, James says, Submit yourselves to God. Come near to God. Wash your hands. Humble yourself before the Lord. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we have dealt this morning with uh, a topic which some of us may well find uh, not too pleasant. But our prayer is that you will challenge each and every one of us with regard to our standing before you. Or that you would turn to us as you did to Moses and to others and refer to us as your friend. We don't want to be your enemy. We want to live for you. We have this desire within us to do good. We love your word, even as Paul did. But there is the flesh. Our prayer this morning is, Heavenly Father, that by your Spirit, each one of us, may be able to control by your spirit and by coming to your word you may be able to control that which is natural within us so that we might live for you so that we might reflect your glory in our daily lives bless us in this way we pray for Jesus sake Amen